This is going to be a recording of Chapter 9 of Betty Green's Summer of My German Soldier. And just to link ideas that are developing in this novel and themes, as the character of Anton uh, becomes more involved in the plot, because now you know that Patty is hiding him, which is a pretty serious decision that she has made, um, remembering that she is only 12, so we can question how much thought she has put into the consequences for um, her action of hiding Anton. But the theme that this is building on is this whole idea of Patty seeing people for their good and not for a label. She sees Anton as a good person and not as she's called him the black booted Nazi. Uh, she actually said he is not at all like the evil black booted Nazis that we stereotype them as being. And so the other thing is that you have a lot of irony. The irony that Patty is a Jewish girl. Anton was in the Nazi army. You would think that they would be enemies and instead they are making friends because she is realizing that often a person is not just what their label is. And the theme that this is building on is the idea about labels, stereotyping people, prejudices that often um, can exist in a lot of different forms and sometimes things happen in life that actually oppose you know stereotypical um, ideas we have about people um, her father you know has exhibited some prejudice against Freddie Dowd for example for him being poor you have the town people that have very openly illustrated disdain for Ruth as an African-American woman, um, treating her like she is less than them. You have had the incident with the Chuli grocery store in which some of the powerful men, well-to-do men in the town of Jenkinsville um, committed a hate crime that seemed pretty blatantly hate-filled and racist. So you have those things going on, and then the irony that the character who belongs to the very group that would be the stereotype of hate and prejudice, and yet he seems to be one of the kinder characters in the novel. And so therein lies a theme about how we judge people and that you sometimes have to look inside of a person and not just at a label. So please keep that in mind as this plot um, continues to develop. And as chapter eight concluded, Anton and Patty were having a conversation about the irony that as a Jewish girl, why would she want to help him? And she says at the end of chapter eight, the reason I'm doing this for you is only that I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to you. And so I think that that quote is underscore um, about 
a theme that's developing in this novel. So with that, this is chapter 9 that begins on page 97. On Main Street, something was different. Too many people hanging around for an ordinary weekday, better than an hour before noontime. And it wasn't the usual little groups of farmers, slow talking about too many things or too many bugs and too little rain. There were quick movements of their hands and high excitement in their voices. I'll tell you this, them people would sooner espionage you than look at you. There were also late model cars licensed Arkansas, land of opportunity, but with a combination of letters and numbers that marked them as having come from places other than here. Everywhere, this strong current of excitement and pleasure only slightly disguised that at long last something pretty big had happened right here in Jenkinsville. I stood in front of our store watching the editor of the Gazette holding informal court for six of Jenkinsville's leading citizens. Mr. Blakey looked up as a shiny black sedan passed slowly down Main Street. He studied the two business-suited occupants before reporting FBI agents from the Little Rock Bureau. Those fellers going to find out this was no ordinary escape, no sir. The new figure, the POW, was fixing to join up with them eight saboteurs, asked Mr. Jackson. I didn't say that, answered Mr. Blakey. Still, something's mighty fishy. Harold himself told me that the Nazi was seen sitting on his bunk at 5 o'clock. At 5.15, he was reported missing. And at 5.17, those Dobermans couldn't find a cent worth picking up. What about the train, the 5.15 to Memphis, asked Mr. Hankins. Mr. Blakey nodded. Gone through with a fine tooth. Why, that train was held up for better than 30 minutes, Nebo. He shook his head. No, sir, I'm telling you, this was no ordinary escape. Mr. Jackson said, Quint, why don't you quit saying what it ain't and tell us what you think it is? Mr. Blakey swallowed down some excess saliva. If you want my opinion, I will say this. Riker had to have help. All right. If he had help, where did he get it from? Mr. Blakey was like a champion fighter readying his knockout punch. Not from inside the camp, I'll wager, because them guards are good, clean Americans. The crescent of men tightened around Blakey. If you fellers will recall, he continued, a couple weeks ago, there was this troop train that derailed in California before that an Army Air Corps plane up and explodes over New Jersey. And yesterday, the very same day that Riker escapes, four Nazi saboteurs are landed on the Florida coast while four more land on Long Island. And you want to know what I think? I'm going to spell it out for you. I sincerely believe that there's a Nazi underground working in this country. And for all anybody knows, it could be working right here among us. Inside the store, I saw that the only activity was over by the hardware. Three farmers were lined up in front of a counter. My father called for Chester. The black man in his gray porter's jacket came running from the back storeroom. Yes, sir, Mr. Harry? Chester, go bring up all the 12-gauge shotgun shells we've got. Yes, sir, Mr. Harry. Two men wearing striped ties and business suits came in the door and headed directly towards my father. I followed them. Mr. Bergen? Asked the older of the men as he flipped open a small leather case. Yes, sir, I'm Harry Bergen. My father came from behind the counter to shake hands with both men. What can I do for the FBI today? I'm John Pierce, 
This is my partner, Phil McPhee. We're here investigating the escape of the prisoner from the POW camp. Pierce handed my father a black and white glossy photograph. Do you have any recollections of this man? Once, said my father. Some POWs were brought in here to buy things, but I didn't pay much attention to what those rats looked like. Pierce pointed the photograph. Look carefully, Mr. Bergen. Riker may have been acting as interpreter for the others. Oh, you know, there was one. My father nodded his head up and down. He was kind of smart aleck, that one. Tried to joke with me, but I told him right off I wasn't interested in making jokes with Germans. Pierce struck the picture with his index finger. Is that the man who tried to joke with you? Well, he might be the one. I'll tell you fellows the truth. I didn't pay much attention to what he looked like. There was one thing I remember. Don't know if it'll help you boys much. What? asked Pierce. He talked in a funny way, pretending to be a Harvard boy instead of a convict. And there's nothing else. No, sir. I sure wish I could be more helpful to you and Mr. Hoover, because he's one of the two greatest living Americans, the other one's General MacArthur. McPhee, who looked as though he hadn't gotten comfortably settled into his 20s yet, allowed his chest to swell to enormous proportions. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your saying that. Pierce crossed the store to show the picture of my mother and Gussie Fields, who shook their heads in unison. Then Sister Parker was asked to take a look. She said no and was about to return the photo when she gave a second, more thoughtful appraisal. You know, he looks a little something like the man Mr. Bergen's girl waited on. Sister Parker turned to find me only a step behind, and she held Anton's picture aloft. Patty, isn't this that German you were talking and laughing with? The eyes of the FBI were upon me. I asked, is it all right if I look? The older gentleman took the picture from Sister's hand and gave it to me. As a precaution against the shakes, I let my hand rest against the top of the counter. Well, this might be the same prisoner I waited on. It looks like it could be him, only I don't remember his hair being so dark. Why didn't you say something before now? Asked McPhee. You've been following us since we entered the store. I have a right to be in the store if I want to. It's my father's store. You were laughing with him, pressed McPhee. Did he say something funny? No. McPhee's face came in close. And why did you laugh? I laughed because, because the dam that kept my tears back sprang a leak. Because he didn't know what to call a pocket pencil sharpener. I hid my eyes in my hands, letting the sobs come at will, regulating their own tensity and volume. Sister Parker put her arm around me, giving me little now-now pats to my shoulder. My father's voice approached. What's the matter? What's happened? McPhee shrugged. We were merely asking her a few questions, and they made her nervous, interrupted Sister. Both of them questioning Patty like she went and took that German out of prison. Do you realize what you did? Asked my father, grabbing my wrist away from my face. I vibrate. It vibrated wildly like the agitator from some old washing machine. Look at that child's hand. She's highly nervous, and I don't appreciate one bit you're upsetting her. I'm going to call the FBI and ask them to give me an explanation for this. Pierce held his head like he was holding onto a headache. Now, Mr. Bergen, please. Don't you please me, said my father. I want to tell you both something. I'm a Jew, and I'd rather help a mad dog escape from the pound than to help a Nazi. Come to my house. Search it from top to bottom, attic, garage, everything. Are you finished talking? Asked Pierce in a voice that just missed being a shout. 
allow me to say this. There is not the slightest suspicion against either you or your daughter. I apologize for my partner who's new with the Bureau and sometimes gets carried away. But now that he understands the situation, I'm certain that he'll want to apologize to both you and your daughter. Don't you, McPhee? Sure, I'm sorry. I don't know the girl. I didn't know the girl was a nervous wreck. Go wait in the car, barked Pierce. He turned his attention to my father. I'm going to have to ask you a favor. The escape of the prisoner Riker may pose a threat to the very security of this nation, and it is considered essential that he be quickly apprehended. We're working night and day to do just that. Now, with that in mind, Mr. Bergen, I'm asking you to please let me talk with your daughter. It's just possible that she might provide some useful thread of information. I wiped away the last of the tears and said, I'll tell you anything I can, just as long as the information is worthless. Mr. Pierce smiled. Fine, fine. As you may have heard, we're fighting the Germans because they're bad. And if one of them gets loose, it's very, very important to catch him. The reason we have to catch him is so he can't hurt children and other people. You understand that, don't you? Perfectly. That's fine, he said, taking out a yellow pencil scarred by teeth marks. Mr. Pierce jotted down a few words on a stenographic pad as I told my story. He asked me to tell it one more time, adding anything that came to mind. The second time, I remembered the color of the pocket pencil sharpener. It was red. The agent removed the pencil from between his teeth to inquire whether I had noticed if there was much money in the prisoner's wallet. I didn't remember seeing a lot of money. The agent wanted to know if I was absolutely certain that the only thing the prisoner bought was the sharpener, paper, and pencils. I thought about the pin with the circle of glass diamonds. There was something else, I said, now that I think of it. The prisoner carried a large tan sack. He must have bought a straw field hat like the rest of the prisoners. Yes, I think he did. Would you say, asked Pierce, lowering his voice, that there was anything peculiar in his behavior? Yes, there was something out of the ordinary about him. What was it? Politeness, I said, aware of beginning to enjoy the interview. He was very polite. The FBI man muttered a thanks as he walked with weighted steps out of the store. Across the store, Quentin Blakey and his crescent of men came in to catch the 12 o'clock news. The FBI has rounded up an additional 15 spies, said the announcer's voice. These spies were preparing to help the eight U-boat saboteurs once they established themselves on the mainland. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover said in Washington today, said in Washington today that the spies had enough money and weapons to carry out a two-year reign of terror. At 2 o'clock this afternoon, Director Hoover will give a full report to the president. In Arkansas, a prisoner of war escapes, continued the announcer. That's us, said Mr. Blakey. Throughout the country, law enforcement agencies are searching for a German prisoner of war, Frederick Anton Riker. Five feet, 10 inches, 165 pounds, vanished yesterday from a prison camp near Jenkinsville, Arkansas. The 22-year-old former Nazi soldier is dark haired, speaks flawless English, and should be considered extremely dangerous. The weather for Little Rock and vicinity is... My father clicked off the radio. Serves them right for coddling those Nazis. Our boys sure don't get that good a treatment when they're taken prisoner. 
The president of the Rotary Club nodded. Trouble with this country is that it's too Christian. The Bible admonishes us to turn the other cheek, but we forget that it also tells us to take a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. I'll tell you something, George, said my father. I don't think they ought to take prisoners, not live ones anyway. There was a chorus of appreciative male laughter. One of the men suddenly gave George Hankins an alerting poke to the ribs. Would you look at what's a-coming in the door? She was young, wearing a tailored dress of sea green with shoulder-length hair that bounced in rhythm with her walk. But as she came up to the male quartet, they all appeared disappointed. For what looked like dazzling beauty at a distance was, at close range, only a trim figure and freshly laundered hair. Excuse me, gentlemen. I'm Charlene Mad Lee of the Commercial Appeal, and I'm looking for Sheriff Caldwell. They told me you might know where I could find him. I haven't seen Harold this morning, said Mr. Blakey. You fellows know where he might be? The town sign painter, Blister, shook his head. I reckon with all the excitement, he's busier than hound dog during hunting season. I followed the lady reporter out to the sidewalk and offered to show her to Sheriff Caldwell's office. As we drove together down Main toward Front Street, I noticed an occasional cluster of men on the sidewalk. Then it struck me, where were all the women folk? Didn't any of the town ladies have bread to buy or an electric bill to pay? It reminded me of a movie I saw. The town men were stationed with guns behind every buckboard, waiting for the Comanches to attack, with all the women and children were holed up in the saloon. The sun, when did it pull its disappearing act? The complexion of the day had changed to unrelieved grayness. There's the jailhouse, I said, pointing to the dirty stucco bungalow with the rippled tin roof that squatted on an open grassy space between Dr. Benson's drugstore and the Rice County National Bank. The sheriff's office is right inside, but I doubt if he's around today. She made a skillful entry into something less than a full parking space. I'll be right back, she said, which I took as an invitation to stick around. I thought about Anton alone and getting hungrier. Just as I decided that I'd better hurry back to him with news and food, the reporter returned. Would you know how to get to the prison camp? She followed my directions through the center of town and then turned right onto Highway 64. My name is Charlene Madley, she said, pulling a cigarette from a puffy beige pocketbook. I think it's very sweet of you to guide me around. Oh, that's okay, I said. I think it must be very interesting being a reporter. How do you become one? Charlene smiled. I could tell she liked my question. What's your name? Patty Bergen. Well, Patty, you need to decide whether you have the aptitude, the ability for it. A good reporter has to have enough curiosity to kill a dozen cats and a love for words. Does that sound like you, Patty? Yes, it does, Miss Madley, really. Call me Charlene. Okay, Charlene. Well, I'm very curious, and that's one of the things that upsets my father. He says that all I do is ask questions, and I do like words. I use them all the time. I said, stumbling over my enthusiasm. I laughed, and so did Charlene. What I meant to say is that, well, you'll probably think this is strange, but I read dictionaries. Really? I keep reading till I find a word I don't know, and then I write down the word and its meaning. I got all the way through Webster's Elementary Dictionary two years ago, and now I'm working my way through Webster's Collegiate. Charlene turned her eyes from the road to look at me. How did you become interested in dictionary reading? Well, it's all mixed up with curiosity. When I read a book... I want to understand precisely what it is the writer's saying, not just almost, but precisely. 
And it's the same when people are talking to you. Like a moment ago, you used the word aptitude. And because you didn't think I understood, you substituted the word ability. But you didn't actually mean ability. We both know that I don't have the ability to be a reporter today, but I just might have the aptitude. That's very well put, said Charlene admiringly. I'll bet you're a real whiz in school. No, I'm not. And you're modest, too. No, it's the truth. I'm not at all good in school. Mostly I make C's, sometimes worse. At McDonald's Dairy Barn, we left the blacktop to turn right on a dusty side road. Farther in the distance, those familiar Y-shaped posts connected a network of barbed wire which squared off the campground. Charlene brought the car to a sudden stop in front of the gate where two rifle-carrying soldiers marched sentry duty. A third soldier stepped out of a guardhouse and threw Charlene a salute. Where are you going, ma'am? I'm Charlene Madley, reporter for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. I want to see your warden. The soldier asked us to wait while he phoned the commandant's office. Within a couple minutes, he returned, shaking his head. I'm real sorry, ma'am. The commandant cannot see reporters today. Charlene opened the car door. You get that commandant back on the phone. I want to speak with him. The soldier's obey reflex had been made strong by constant use. Without hesitation, he returned to the telephone. It's all yours, ma'am he said, extending the black receiver to Charlene. Commandant, this is Charlene Madley of the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Commandant, I have information that suggests that the security of this prison is lax and... Of course, yes, I understand that. No, I know it isn't fair, and that's the reason I drove the 40 miles from Memphis just to get your side of the story. First barrack on the left. Thank you. Charlene shook her head in disbelief. The commandant just fell for the oldest newspaper trick in the world. The first barrack on the left was indistinguishable from all the others spread around the compound with their painted white walls. We came to a stop directly in front of a sign which stated, Reserved for General Staff. A soldier wearing two chevrons on his sleeve approached. You're the reporter. As we followed a few steps behind him, Charlene handed me some sheets of yellow paper and a thick eraserless pencil. You really want to be a reporter? Then we'll let this be your first assignment. Write down everything that you consider pertinent to the fact that a prisoner has escaped. The name on the door read Major E.L. Roper, commanding. I wrote that down. He rose from his desk as we entered. Yes, happy to see you. Please come right in, Miss, Miss uh, Maud Lee. Madly, corrected Charlene as she shook his extended hand. She introduced me as her friend, Patty Bergen, who has the aptitude to become a good reporter. Major, what I came here to find out, said Charlene, is how was it possible for a prisoner to escape this camp? He pushed some imaginary strands of hair across a hairless dome. We're real proud of our security system here, Miss Madly. We follow the same master plan for security as 80 similar camps across this country. The alarm system, the many security checks, the canine corps of trained Dobermans, even the exact amount of voltage per square foot of areas written out. And I'm here to see that the orders are carried out according to the master plan. Major Roper unrolled a blueprint of the camp. While my writing hand was cramping from the race to get it all down, Charlene seemed to be working at a more leisurely pace. 
I began to worry that maybe I was doing it all wrong. Charlene lit her own cigarette with a small gold lighter and blew smoke in the general direction of the officer. Then Major Roper, how is it possible that a prisoner did in fact escape? That has not yet been fully determined. We are not in charge of the investigation. That comes under the jurisdiction of the FBI, but you should know that nothing is 100% foolproof. There's no prison built that somebody hadn't escaped from. Major Roper's statement seemed persuasive. I looked at Charlene to see if she, too, was impressed. She leaned back in her chair, stretching her legs forward. But, Major, is it usual to escape without even leaving a clue? Her, his eyelids lowered. Who told you that nonsense? Oh, then there were clues. Charlene's voice was positively sunny. As I've tried to indicate to you, the FBI is in charge of the investigation and... Is it true, interrupted Charlene, that the dogs were unable to pick up a scent anywhere, not even from the prisoner's own bed? Young lady, I'd like to cooperate with the press, but I will have to ask you not to write anything that would make us look foolish. I can have shame brought down on the heads of the loyal men in my com- I can't have shame brought down on the heads of the loyal men in my command. Charlene lifted an eyebrow. Let me assure you, Major. That's not my intention, to bring ridicule upon you or your men. All I want is the information so that I can bring back a story that will make my editor happy. The officer sighed like a great weariness had overtaken him. Very well. He picked up an index card and read, The escapee's name is Frederick Anton Riker, serial number GL1877, rank, private, German Army, height, Five feet, ten and a half inches, weight, 165 pounds, age, 22, born, Göttingen, Germany, prison record, cooperative, health. In May, Riker was hospitalized in the prison infirmary for appendicitis. He pitched the card across his desk. At exactly 4.50 yesterday afternoon, the prisoners of barracks 314, having eaten their evening meal, filed out of mess hall. A few minutes later, Riker was sitting on his bunk with another prisoner named Blinkoff. Riker was reading his palm. At 5.17 roll call, Riker was reported missing. Chapter 9 continued. This is page 111. Continued. A general alarm was sounded and the camp dogs were immediately taken to Riker's bunk, but they were unable to get his scent. This was due without doubt to the fact that Riker had had three other prisoners sitting on his bed for palm readings. The dogs were hopelessly confused. A search was made for Riker's clothing and personal effects, but nothing was located. Major Roper rotated his swivel chair toward the window. His eyes seemed to scan the grounds for the prisoner who, like a pair of reading glasses, would turn out to be only temporarily misplaced. It was Charlene who broke the spell. Major Did Frederick Riker escape prison to join forces with the eight saboteurs? I have no reason to believe that. What I would like to do now, with your permission, is speak with some of the people who knew Riker. Oh, yes, indeed, he said, pressing a button. The door opened and the corporal appeared as quickly as a genie. Major Roper explained Charlene's request and told the soldier to offer all assistance. We followed the corporal into the outer office where he began making phone calls A clock gave the time at five minutes till two. If only I could get some word to Anton, let him know. 
He must be hungry and worried. The corporal hit the receiver back onto the hook. I'm sorry. Looks like everybody's out on work detail. Then take me over to your infirmary, said Charlene. Inside the infirmary, the smell was all soap and Lysol. The corporal led us past a ward with two dozen white sheeted beds, but only five or six patients. At the end of the hall, he opened the door where a red sign, a sign read, Captain Gerald S. Robinson. A crew-cut soldier with a single chevron sat in a cluttered outer office, two-finger typing. Captain Robinson, a small, fastidious man, stood up behind a large, untidy desk when we entered. Interesting, he said, giving Charlene a smile. The FBI hasn't yet been around to interview me, and I may have known Anton Riker as well as any American in this camp. Lucky I found you, doctor, or should I call you by your military title? Oh, you probably should, but don't. Dr. Robinson, would you say that the escapee was a tough kind of prisoner? He selected a pipe with a curved stem from a rack of six. I'd say so, but not in the conventional sense. It seems to me that Riker has a toughness of mind. In medicine, when a person is in constant contact with the disease and yet is able to resist catching it himself, then he would be considered to have great resiliency or, in street parlance, toughness. The doctor looked at Charlene. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I said with a suddenness that surprised me. His mind was strong and clear, and he didn't believe what the Nazis wanted him to believe. More or less, said the doctor. Then, in your opinion, said Charlene, he didn't escape for the purposes of joining forces with the eight U-boat saboteurs. Oh, I suspect he wanted his freedom and nothing more. But Dr. Robinson... Isn't it a distinct possibility that Riker was merely faking an attitude that he could later use to advantage? He took a long puff from his pipe. It is possible, but I doubt it. Some of our prisoners, mostly former members of the SS, are truly fanatical men. They're arrogant, and they don't care who knows it. Riker wasn't cut from that mold. He was a scholar, interested in books and ideas, and perhaps more important, he was a loner. This is very interesting, but could you give me a concrete example of something that the prisoner said or did that gives you this impression? Dr. Robinson leaned deep into his chair. I can't honestly remember specifically anything that he said, only Charlene's body pitched forward. Only what? It was only that he seemed like a decent man. Before the prison gate stood the same obedient sentry. His eyes swept over the blue sedan before calling, Proceed, ma'am, as Charlene blasted off, leaving behind a trail of raised dust. Charlene didn't say anything, and I was grateful for the chance to remember the doctor's words. It was then that I experienced the last of my fear taking flight. Nestling down in its place came exultation. At this moment, on a dusty back road, within smelling distance of McDonald's Dairy Barn, I felt the greatest joy I had ever known.